Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to our fifth 2023 Virtual HOA Condo Academy. The topic we're going to be talking about today is long-term planning for HOAs and condos. Looks like we already have about 43 people. Wow, that's amazing. Already joining us. Welcome to our class, the fifth class of our 2023 Virtual HOA Academy. We teach this HOA Academy in partnership with the cities of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Phoenix, Scottsdale Surprise, and Tempe. I'd like to give a special shout out and thank you to the neighborhood services departments from these different cities uh, to partner with our firm to provide this free education to board members, managers, and homeowners regarding HOA and condominium laws. Just as a starting point for those of you who I haven't met, my name is Beth Mulcahy, and I am the managing partner and senior attorney for the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. I've enjoyed representing HOAs and condominiums for over 26 years um, as their legal counsel. My firm currently represents over a thousand planned communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. I also currently serve on my HOA board and I have for many years. Before we dive into the meat of the seminar today, I always like to know who's in my audience. So I'd like to start off by having you do a quick poll so that I know which city you reside in and then also what your role is with your community. So if some of you are joining us on Facebook Live, awesome. Thanks for having you here. Thanks for coming today and we're happy to have you here. Um, just fill in in the comment section on Facebook Live, which city you reside in, and then what your role is with the association, board member, homeowner, manager. If you're joining us here on Zoom, you're going to have the poll right there on your screen. Um, and we ask that you just fill out the poll results so we know who's represented here today from which cities, and then also what your role is so I can best tailor our presentation. While we're waiting for those poll results to come in, um, I'm going to just talk a little bit about what's on tap for today. Um, in today's class, I'm going to provide a summary of the four HOA and condo bills that have been signed into law already by Governor Hobbs. And then we're going to take a deep dive into everything you need to know about long-term and strategic planning for HOAs and condos. Um, part of that's going to be talking about how to create a strategic plan. We're going to talk about budgets and budgeting, which you should all be thinking about this summer. We're going to talk a little bit about reserve studies and reserve funding. And last, we're going to close our session with an informative cheat sheet that I'm going to share with you on the Eisenhower method, which is a method that businesses use to help solve problems. Um, and as always, there's going to be a Q&A session at the end of the class. So we encourage you to submit your questions via the Q&A box on Zoom and the comment section on Facebook Live. And we promise to answer all of your legal questions during the session today. We do ask, however, that you limit your question we limit, you limit to one question per person, and please be specific in your question as I can't follow up because of the format of the presentation today. It's hard for me to ask a follow-up question if I don't understand something. I'm so happy to hear that we already have 111 people on Zoom with us here today. I think that could be possibly one of our highest class attendances, and we also have a number of you joining us on Facebook Live today. So welcome, everybody. Thank you for being here. Okay, let's take a quick check at our poll results. Looks like we have really great representation today. Wow, we have almost entirely full representation from all the cities that 
are sponsoring these classes. And so with the exception of one, so we have 7% from Chandler, 4% from Glendale today, 1% from Goodyear, 18% from Mesa. That's a new high for Mesa. 5% from Peoria, 24% from Phoenix, 32% from Scottsdale. Great job, Scottsdale. You're in the lead. 4% from Surprise and 5% from Tempe. So really great. We've got a wonderful representation of many of the cities in the Valley of the Sun this morning. So great to have all of you here with us. Also, we have um, a great representation of what your current role is here in your associations. So we have 68% of you are board members, 5% are community managers, 23% are interested homeowners, and then we have 4% that are other. So welcome to everybody. Thanks for being here today. Looks like we have a a little bit larger representation um, of board members, which is awesome. Um, But we also have a pretty good representation from interested homeowners too. So welcome everybody and look forward to having a great class. Okay, let's talk about the Arizona legislative session. For those of you who've been following the Arizona legislature, we closely follow it for the associations that we represent and to provide free information to the HOA and condo industry. So every year, there's a number of bills that pertain to associations that are um, signed into law, and this year is no exception. The legislative session started in January 2023. Um, It's starting to wind down a little bit because Governor Hobbs signed the 2024 budget, which is kind of like one of the last big tasks the legislature has to do on May 12th. And so things are really winding down now with the legislature um, and we're nearing the end of the legislative session. That being said, we've already had four bills that have been signed by Governor Hobbs. There were a record number of vetoes. Um, I think only one HOA condo bill was vetoed. But we did get four HOA bills that were signed into law this year. Um, So let's talk briefly about those four bills. Remember, at the end of the legislative session, we will be doing a full executive summary for you, for your communities, your boards, your homeowners and managers. Um, And we'll be posting that on our webpage at mulcahylawfirm.com. But any class that I teach between now and the effective date of the the new laws, we'll be talking about the, the new laws and how they may impact your associations. Just a couple of points that I want to make. The effective date, which means the date that these laws will go into effect, will be 91 days after the legislative session ends. And like I said, right now, the legislative session is still in session. It's still open. If I had to guess, it will likely, you know, wind down before the end of May. Um, And then we'll start counting whatever the last day of the legislative session is. Then we'll start counting 91 days forward. And that will be the time that all these new bills will go into effect. So we'll have a little bit of time um, to get acclimated to these new laws and to discuss them and answer questions over the next few months. Okay, the first bill that we're going to talk about um, talks about it's for planned communities only, and it talks about the ability to regulate parking on streets in a planned community when the streets are dedicated to the public. So the association doesn't own the streets. So the two things you have to know for this bill to apply to you as a you would be number one, are you a planned community? If yes, then are the streets dedicated to the public? And so basically, this is just kind of a, this bill, in my opinion, is um, a way to 
slowly take away an association's ability to regulate on street parking um, in, a, in a planned community where the streets are dedicated to the public. So the association doesn't own the streets. So just basically, if your association's declaration was reported after December 31st, 2014, regardless of what your association's documents say, after the period of developer control, the association will have no authority over and cannot regulate any roadway for which the ownership has been dedicated to or is otherwise held by a governmental agency. So if you're an association and your CCNRs were recorded after December 31st, 2014, and you are post-developer control, once this bill becomes law, you will not be able to regulate on-street parking or speeding or anything like that in your uh, on your roadways within your association. For any planned community that was created before January 1st, 2015, there's going to be a procedure that you're going to need to follow if your association still wants to regulate on-street parking on your streets that are dedicated to the public. And basically, I think what's happening here is the legislature is just making it, I think the intent here is that they don't want associations regulating streets that are dedicated to the public with parking. And so the most common regulation for associations on streets is, you know, parking over overnight parking in violation of your documents or whatever. So if you were created before January 1st, 2015, they're setting up a procedure that if you want to continue regulating on street parking in your association, no later than June 30th, 2025, um, you're going to have to call a meeting of your membership on the question of whether or not your association should continue to regulate public roadways. At that meeting, if the number of owners voting on the question is sufficient to constitute a quorum, so you have to check your bylaws for the quorum, um, and a majority of the number of votes to continuing regulating public roadways is obtained, then you can continue to regulate the public roadways. If you fail to conduct that vote by June 30th, 2025, then it automatically will revert as of June 30th, 2025. It will revert to no longer being able to regulate on street parking on your, your streets. And so just kind of an interesting new law. This only is, again, going to apply to planned communities. It's only going to apply to planned communities that have streets that are dedicated to the public. You just have to divide yourself into two groups. If your association was recorded if your association CCNRs are recorded after December 31st, 2014, effective, you know, whatever date the law becomes effective, 91 days after the legislature closes, you won't be able to regulate streets anymore. If you fall into the category that you're a planned community and you have your streets that are dedicated to the public and your CCNRs are recorded before January 1st, 2015, you have to go through this process of having the meeting to vote on whether or not you want to continue to regulate the streets or not. And that would need to be done by June 30th, 2025. This will be an interesting bill to see how this unfolds. I guess my feeling as somebody who's practiced in this area for over a quarter of a century is that you will never get a quorum for this. And so you won't, you know, you won't be able to get the votes that you'll need um, unless parking's a really hot topic in your community and people really want the association to regulate the on-street parking. Okay, the next bill we're going to talk about is talking about political activities. I think over the past two years, we've seen a lot of bills pertaining to political activity in associations. Last year, we saw the bill where political signs regarding association issues can be placed on an owner's property in a condo in a planned community. Interestingly, this year, it talks a little bit about, um, and this applies both to planned communities and condominiums, 
And so, you know, there's been a, a law in the books that talks about door-to-door political activity within an association, whether you're a condominium or a planned community. And it says that, you know, notwithstanding any provision in the association's documents, an association cannot prohibit door-to-door political activity, including solicitations in support or against candidate or ballot issues. But, you know, this year they've clarified it a little bit. And basically what it says is in condominiums and planned communities, the association can prohibit a person who is not accompanied by a unit owner or a resident of the condominium or planned community from entering the condominium premises if the condominium restricts vehicular or pedestrian access. And so just kind of an interesting little clarification. So first things first, if there is your association plan community or condo does not restrict vehicular or pedestrian access. So just anybody can come across your streets or walk into your community, you know, and there's no restriction on it. Associations cannot prohibit the door-to-door political activity. If you are an association plan community or condo that does restrict vehicular or pedestrian access, if there's going to be any door-to-door solicitation, political activity, or on ballot issues, any solicitor that comes in is going to need to be accompanied by a unit owner or a resident, or they can't come in. So just kind of an interesting um, clarification on this. Okay, moving on to the next two bills are a lot easier. So we're going to get through those quickly. The next one is kind of the, the final bill that has the most recent bill that was signed by the governor. And basically, it just puts in place a penalty if your association receives a petition to remove a director or directors from your board of directors, and the association doesn't act to call, notice, and hold a special meeting to remove the director or directors within 30 days. The automatic penalty is that the board of directors, so the members, all members of the board, are deemed removed um, on effective midnight on the 31st day. So this actually really puts a lot of pressure on associations when we receive a petition calling for the removal of a board. You know, we have a lot to get done in 30 days. Basically, we have to validate the petition, make sure that the people who signed it are record owners and they're in good standing. Then we have to set up a special meeting of the membership and get the notice out for that, including the ballot. And then we actually have to conduct the meeting all within this 30-day period. So, and if we don't, this new law says that the entire board's deemed removed um, effective midnight on the 31st day. So I think kind of the practice pointer here that I would give is when you receive a petition calling for the removal of a board member or board members, you need to fast track it to your attorney ASAP and get working on the entire process that we need to follow on conducting a meeting, noticing the meeting, conducting the meeting, et cetera, because all of that needs to be done within the 30 days. Okay, the last bill is a bill uh, that applies to planned communities and condominiums. It basically just says that associations cannot ban any historic version of the American flag, including the Betsy Ross flag, without regard to how the stars and stripes are arranged on the flag. So that's just kind of an odd bill for for this year. But um, so if somebody wants to fly their Betsy Ross flag, um, it is a protected flag once this new law goes into effect. We have a link to the 2023, you know, just a very brief legislative summary. We're going to be putting out, like I said, a more detailed summary as soon as the legislature closes for the year in 2023. So watch for that on our website or watch for it. We'll be talking about it on these classes as well on any future neighborhood services classes or any of our First Fridays classes. Okay, let's shift gears and talk about our main topic for today, which is long-term planning for associations. 
Really, the things that pop into my head when I start thinking about long-term planning for an association is there's no time to do it, right? Because we're so caught up in the day-to-day affairs of running the association. And I know that firsthand because I serve on my board and I have for many years. Some things that kind of, you know, we seem to get caught up in dealing with problems in your association and handling maintenance issues and difficult owners maybe, or um, just paying bills and just handling this little small things that come up every month. And we really never spend time thinking about where do we want our association to be in one year, five years, 10 years, 15 years for your association. And so we're going to talk a little bit about how to create a strategic plan for your association. And it's not difficult. So I don't want to scare you away with, oh, this is going to be like some you know really difficult process for your association. It's really not. You just need for the board to set aside some time to think about what does the future look like for our association? And I'm going to give you a plan right here today on how you can do that. In association with that, you know, two very, really important topics are going to be budgeting and also conducting, you know, having a reserve study and funding your reserves. Um, and then last, we're going to talk about using the Eisenhower method to handle serious problems that may be facing your association. And it, it's a way to help you categorize all the problems you have right now in your association. You put them into groups as to whether they're an urgent or urgent and important or just important. Um, it helps you prioritize what you need to be focusing on first. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time at the end of the class talking about that. Okay, what is a strategic plan and why is it important for an association? So basically, it's just a way for the association to plan for the future and think about the bigger issues that your association you know, is going to be facing in the future. Spending time on a strategic plan, maybe a separate meeting, which we're going to talk a little bit about this in a minute, is a great idea because it separates it from you know, the day-to-day minutiae of running your association and the issues that are associated with that, which honestly take a lot of time. Um, so creating a, a special time you know, once a year to talk about your strategic plan and to update it and to come up with what type of projects we want to be working on and thinking about for the future is, is really helpful. It's also a chance to look at the big picture, right? Because we're kind of myopic and in terms of we are dealing with owners and just very like day-to-day immediate smaller issues. This gives us a chance to think about what is, what's the culture of our community? What do we want our community and the aesthetics of our community to look like? Do we have a brand for our community? And is this, what type of improvements can we do to brand our association as, you know, whatever you want it to be, whether it's we want this to be a place where people have access to a health club or tennis courts or pickleball courts or shuffleboard or whatever your issues are for your community. We want to think about what is our brand and how are we going to create that so that we attract buyers to live in our community. Or maybe your brand is it's quiet. You want quiet, peace and quiet. And, you know, there's a number of associations um, in different parts of the valley where people go there for peace. Maybe they have an acre of land and, and they don't want to have a lot of close contact with their neighbors, et cetera. So we have to think about what the, the brand is going to be for each of your communities. And then how can you address the current and future needs of your community? What are things that are going to come up in the future that may be things that people expect when they buy into a large master plan community or 
Maybe they expect to have 24-hour security because it was there when they purchased right now, but maybe in the future, this could become cost prohibitive. And how do we improve our amenities and the infrastructure for the association? If you have a clubhouse or you have a lot of amenities in your community, how do we continue to improve those over the years so that we don't get a bunch of deferred maintenance and they don't fall into disrepair? Um, you know, at least once a month, I have an association that will call me and say, hey, we're, we have to chain our tennis courts shut because they're in such bad shape and we don't have enough money to fix them. And that's a huge problem, obviously, because it's an amenity, it can't be used, and it's kind of a sign of, hey, we never did any long-term planning, and now we just have to paint it shut, which is obviously not a good message to your homeowners or to future buyers. And then how can we you know, improve the board to better drive excellent customer service? And you know, is our management company working out? Are they providing the level of service, returning phone calls on time and handling maintenance issues quickly and staying on top of the different vendors for the association to make sure that the vendors are doing what they're supposed to be doing? So it's just a good opportunity to do a 360 view of all of these different things. As you're evaluating these things, you're going to come up with a plan and it's going to, we're going to show you how to do the plan, but it's going to help you prioritize and write down um, the things that you're thinking about collaboratively as a board. And then you can start looking at that plan every year and see how you're doing um, in terms of, are we improving our customer service? Are we continuing to maintain our amenities? Have we started to create a brand, done some marketing to create a band, a brand, like a, a beautiful website or whatever um, the different marketing things you may want to do to best get your association's name out there for people that might be interested in purchasing. Okay, so let's talk about what are the steps to create a strategic plan for your association? So first thing first is come up with some values, a mission statement, and a vision for your association. This is really helpful because it's the thing that you always go back to in trying times. Um, and so there's many examples. What you can do if you're, if you're looking for examples would be email large master plan communities in Arizona. And on their front page of their webpage, they're going to be talking about what their core values are for their communities. Large developers always do this when they're trying to sell their communities and they're selling a lifestyle, they're selling a brand, they're selling a feeling for how you, you know, want to feel when you live in this association. And so this is a good way to kind of define what your association's mission is and what your vision is and what your values are. Some things to think about are what are some things that make your community unique? Are you in Tempe, located near ASU? And is that something, you know, where you're, that location, um, you want to focus on that? Or are you in Paradise Valley and you have beautiful mountains surrounding you? It's Phoenix Mountain Preserves and Camelback Mountain. Basically, the goal that you're looking for when you're talking about your values and your mission statement and your vision is we want an association that's going to be well-organized and managed where owners are involved and where everybody's having their needs met. Everybody wants to drive into the community and have it look beautiful. If you have amenities, we want the amenities to be up to par and for people to want to use them. You know, and as you're thinking about what your mission statement is, I mean, I probably just spent 10 minutes on it and I would brainstorm it if I were you. And then just have one person come back and say, okay, I took all the ideas and I crafted it into a mission statement or 
all of you can work on a mission statement together. It should be one sentence, very succinct, and just defines what's important for your association. The next thing you want to do is have a a planning meeting. So probably you can talk about your mission statement at a regular board meeting, and then you're going to want to have a special planning meeting for your association with all of your board members present. And the strategic planning meeting is going to be what is your vision for the community for the next one year, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? And basically, I think you should just have one person taking notes, like the secretary or your manager, and just start putting ideas out there. Yeah. If your association was built in 1970, you're probably hitting the mark where you're starting to have some major deferred maintenance issues. And maybe your infrastructure needs a lot of help to bring it up to year 2023. Um, If you're a newer association, you may not need to worry about this as much, or you may already have a mission statement from when the developer was in control. But basically, what I would do is just brainstorm and share ideas um, during this session about, okay, what what do we see for the future? Something that you want to do during this brainstorm is talk about what your priorities are and what your resources are. A good thing to look at right now is look at your reserve study. Um, Hopefully, you have one for your community. And your reserve study is a 30-year plan for your amenities. And so you can just do a quick little outline. Okay, you're going to see different years on the reserve study as you read it are going to be big spending years. And so you might even want to break it out like that. Okay, so whatever the year is, year six, we're going to have you know a lot of different capital improvement projects being done that year. Or maybe you're doing them every year. So you're spreading out um, the amount of money that's being spent and not depleting your reserve all at once. Maybe you're an association that hasn't done anything for 20 years or 25 years, and you need to do a big overhaul, you know, and, and there's planning that needs to be done for that. Maybe it needs to be done in phases. Maybe you need to get a loan. Maybe you need to consult with your experts to find out, can we change the use of the pickleball or the tennis courts and make it pickleball? Can we get rid of a parking lot here and make it a dog run? You know, and so basically at the strategic planning meeting, you know, you're going to go through these different areas. So you're going to first start out with the vision statement that you talked about at a board meeting. Then you're going to share ideas as a board as to what we see, you know, the next 20 years look like for your association. And we're going to look at the reserve, look at what needs to be done. Maybe you haven't been following the reserve, so you're behind, or maybe you've been following it every year and, you know, it's just going to be a great roadmap going forward. Or maybe you've got a lot of deferred maintenance and you're going to need to come up with a plan to get caught up. Brainstorm on this as a board while looking at your reserve. Then talk with your experts, your management company, your attorney, and find out the answers to any questions you may have. Like, can we do a special assessment? Can we change the use of the land? Can we increase the assessment to pay for this? Can we get a loan? And then after you have all that information, then you're going to want to put this into a strategic plan document and try to make that document one page if you can, just because when it gets to be too lengthy, people usually don't read it and it becomes too overbearing for people. And basically just kind of outline what your strategic plan is for your association. What I would recommend is that you pick three to five projects that you're going to focus on first as a board so that you're not overwhelmed. And then create realistic goals for each item. And then once the goals are set, plan out how you're going to reach those goals. You know, include how this is consistent with your core values and mission statement for your association. And I'm not going to lie to you, this is the hardest part of 
the process. It's easy to brainstorm and everybody's flowing with ideas, but really this is where you have to narrow it down to, you know, three objectives that you, you know, may want to accomplish in one to five years. And then maybe you have a few comments about projects in the future, but those are far off. So you're not going deep on those. You just make it a one page document with your strategic plan um, with how you're going to handle these projects. And then it's a good idea to talk about it and prove it at a board meeting. So that's part of your minutes and it becomes part of the record of your association. So here's some examples of goals that we've seen some associations do. And, and sometimes they don't have to be like really meaty, difficult, hard goals, right? They could be something like create a social committee to promote a sense of community. That could be, you know, something that's on your strategic plan. Streamlining collections and violations for owners that aren't following your documents. Create a five-year, 10-year budget forecast to plan ahead for long-range capital improvements. And that's, you know, might be like a shortened version of what your reserve is, just getting it in very concise format. Okay, this year we're doing this, this year we're doing this. Maybe have a disaster preparedness plan for your community. There are lots of different examples. Revising and updating your association's documents is another, you know, big thing. We're seeing a huge increase in the number of associations that are reaching out to our firm to think about amending their documents because a lot of associations were created in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s, and they've never once amended their documents. And so that's something that a lot of boards want to get their documents consistent with Arizona law and, and get them into 2023 format where language isn't antiquated, they're easy to understand, and it's consistent with what the law actually says in Arizona. So these are all examples. Every association is going to have different needs. So I encourage you to keep it open-ended. It, it doesn't have to be all hard planning, you know, capital infrastructure type things. There can be some easier softballs too. And, you know, maybe you want to do two easy ones and one hard one in your strategic plan for this year and next year. Um, it's really up to you how you want to do it. And then every year is a good time to review it. And a good month to do this would be in January of, of each year. And kind of this is similar to like the goals of your association. So add it to your agenda for your January board meeting every year and revisit things. And maybe if you didn't get something done last year, move it to this year to put into top priority. You know, our best suggestions for the strategic plan. So just kind of a quick summary um, on the strategic plan. Um, why is it important? Because we spend so much time talking about the minutia and the day-to-day -day operations of running an association that we never really plan for the future and you know, short-term and long-term future. And so it's important for an association first to start out by you know, having a mission statement and a vision for your community. So that's something that you can just talk about at a board meeting. Um, then you want to have a special meeting outside of a board meeting where you just talk about strategic planning for your community. And we talked about the board sharing ideas, looking at your reserve study, um, about things that you want to do in your community in the future. And then you talk with your experts, and then you actually get their input as to how they suggest that you handle these different things that you may want to do in the future. Then create a one-page strategic plan document that lists maybe three to five goals that you may have over a time period. And then prove it at a board meeting and then revisit every year in January to make sure that you're staying on top of your long-term goals. 
Um, in the very near future, we're going to be creating a new cheat sheet on this. That um, So stay tuned on this, um, which I think will be really helpful. And we're going to give you a template that you can use when you have a strategic plan meeting as a board, just to help you get the ideas flowing and maybe even a little checklist of ideas in case you get into the meeting and ideas aren't flowing that, that quickly. So we're working on that and we're going to have that too, hopefully before this summer. Okay, let's switch gears now that we've covered the strategic plan. And let's talk a little bit about the HOA budget and budgeting process in an association. We have a a really uh, good overview cheat sheet um, called Budgeting for Community Associations, which um, we're going to be providing to all of you on Facebook Live and also on Zoom. And, you know, just some starting points on the budget. So you will start thinking about the budget for 2024, likely late summer, early fall of 2023. And obviously you're looking at your current budget for 2023, hopefully every month. You should be looking at the year-to-date budget to see are you over or under budget on items and why that should be evaluated on a monthly basis so that you don't run out of money at the end of the year for your association. When you're creating your budget, our cheat sheet on creating a a budget um, is a really useful resource. Um, So I really suggest that you whip this out next summer, this coming summer and or this fall. And you kind of go through the different steps that we have on the budgeting process that are listed on that cheat sheet. Um, There's some very helpful information on that cheat sheet. We go through the step-by-step process on how you create the budget. Probably the most important thing you do when you're looking at your budget is look at what happened last year and the year before. Where were you over budget? Where were you under budget? Look at what you're forecasting for the next year. You know, if you have some deferred maintenance or large capital improvement projects, you're going to want to include that in the upcoming budget for that year. Look at your strategic plan. Are there things on your plan that you need to start budgeting for? Like, do we need to put more money in our reserves? Or do we need to allocate money in the budget for next year to do that strategic plan item? Um, and we just kind of go through the whole budgeting process in, the, in that cheat sheet. So when the time comes, I really recommend that you pop this cheat sheet out and take a quick peek at it. Okay, our next subject that we're going to talk about are reserve studies and reserve accounts. The question I get often on reserves and reserve studies and reserve accounts are, do we have to have them in Arizona? Under Arizona law, there is no requirement that you have a reserve study done by a qualified expert that has experience in doing reserve studies. There's there's no requirement for that. Um, There's also no requirement to have a reserve account, which is, you know, kind of like your long term planning, capital improvement planning, savings account. But that being said, even though the law doesn't require it in Arizona, it's best practices to have it. And many other states just, you know, have it. It's it's likely going to come to Arizona at some point. It just, it hasn't been on our legislature's radar yet. And why is it important? Because it gives us a tool to help boards plan for the future financially in terms of what are the things that need to be done? What year do they need to be done? What's their useful life? How do we pay for it? How much is it going to cost? And like I said, we have a great cheat sheet on the topic of reserves that I would really recommend that you take a peek at. Um, it's called Reserve Funds for Community Associations. And it talks you know, about what is a reserve account? What is a reserve study? Um, how much does it cost? And so we're going to do just a kind of a quick overview of that today. Even though the law in Arizona doesn't require that you have a reserve study done or that you have a reserve account for your association, interestingly, the law does require that if you have had a reserve study done, 
or if you have a reserve account, that you notify potential buyers of that information. So you have to provide them with a copy of the reserve study or a summary of it if it's over 10 pages. And you have to provide them with information regarding how much money is in your reserve. So even though it's not the law, a savvy buyer is going to be looking at that on the disclosure statement when they get disclosed information about what's um, how much the assessments are, what type of insurance you have to have to you know, if you're an owner in the association, one of the line items on the disclosure that the association provides to buyers is, do we have a reserve study? If we do, here's the copy and um, here's how much money we have in the reserve. Now, savvy buyers, what they're going to do is they're going to look at the reserve study and they're going to look at the year we're in, 2023, and they're going to look at what the reserve study says we should have in our reserves, the amount, dollar amount. And then they're going to actually look at what how much money we actually have disclosed in the reserve. And if the numbers are too far off, what, what's the savvy buyer going to think? They're going to think this association doesn't have enough money in their reserves to cover the types of things that need to be done to continue to maintain the association. And when you don't have enough money on hand for that, what typically happens is there's a large increase in the assessment rate or there's a special assessment or the association has to take out a loan to fund things. And that's a sign of, possibly a sign of the association not being financially sound and not doing you know, adequate financial planning for the future. So even though it's not the law, this really is important because for the financial well-being of your association and for the maintenance well-being of your association and you know, so that we can disclose to buyers that, hey, we, we have a reserve study and we have it funded. Now, how much is enough? It depends. You know, some people say, yeah, it has to be 100% funded. I really don't know very many associations. The 1,000 associations we represent, I would say less than 5% are 100% funded. I'd say a good range would be between 60 and 80% funded. So 60 and 80% of what your reserve study says you should have, you should actually have that funded in your reserve account. Basically, what's the point of reserve funding? It allows an association to provide for a plan for the repair, maintenance, and replacement of the association's assets as the community ages. And so it's our plan for continuing to maintain the association. And for some of you who don't have a reserve study done or you don't have a reserve account, that might be something you put on your strategic plan. Like, hey, we need to get a reserve study in place, you know, so that we can start planning for long-term capital improvements and better maintenance and repairs of items in our association. Remember that the reserve study is just, it's a budgeting guide. Um, it's usually a pretty thick document. There's a couple pages that are the most important pages. Probably whenever I get a reserve study, the first page I go to is the 30-year forecast. And it's usually like buried right in the middle. Basically, I look at that. It gives how much money should be in the reserve account year by year. And then it says how much you actually have. So you know what percentage you're funded. And it's just a guide that's going to give us a plan as an association for how much it's reasonable for us to save or to put away in our reserve account so that when a specific project is due to be replaced or fixed or whatever, we have the money in our reserve account to pay for it. And then we don't need to take out a loan or do a special assessment to pay for it. So it's just a good planning tool for associations so that you can be fiscally sound. 
A reserve study should provide a detailed inventory of all the assets of the association that have been labeled as assets for the reserve account, where the assets are located. So pool on the common areas or, or whatever, the current age of the asset and the remaining life before it needs to be repaired, maintained, or replaced. And the reserve study just computes all of this for you, how much it's going to cost to replace it. Even if it's 10 years out, they can forecast what the cost is going to be to replace it and how much money we need to set aside over the next 10 years so that we have the money in our account. Um, and then it also gives you a calculation of how much we should be contributing each month to meet our goals, to be able to fund the reserve so that we can pay for the you know, repair, maintenance, and replacement of all of our you know, capital improvement items in the association. So how much does a reserve study cost? It really depends on how large your association is and how many amenities you have. I mean, it could be anywhere from $1,500 for a smaller association all the way up to $10,000. Typically, reserve studies are updated about every three to five years. Um, and that's important, obviously, because of inflation. The cost to repair or replace certain items has been fluctuating, as we all know, over the past two years. So, you know, you want to make sure that you're getting adequate numbers for what the replacement and repair costs are due to inflation. You know, and, and really just the reasons for having the reserve fund. Again, it's, it's good business judgment to do it, plan for the future. It meets the board's legal and fiduciary duties and requirements to best manage the association um, as their fiduciaries um, and to act in the best interest of the association. It gives us a plan for replacing items that need to be replaced. A reserve fund distributes the burden of paying for all of this between old owners and new owners. Why is that important? Because sometimes, like, let's say somebody just purchases a lot in an association and then three months later, there's a $100,000 special assessment. Well, that's kind of not fair because the person hasn't lived there that long. And guess what? Now they are having to pay up for the prior board's lack of maintenance or failure to maintain in the past. People get upset about that you know, when you're voting on a topic like this. Um, it also minimizes the need to have a special assessment. I think we've talked about that a couple different ways here today, but proper planning by using a reserve and a reserve study will negate the need for a special assessment or to have to go get a loan from a bank to pay for maintenance or repair or something. Um, and it also enhances the value of your property because when you're disclosing this information to a buyer, a savvy buyer, when they see on your reserve study and then they compare it to your financial statement in terms of how much money you have in your reserve, the savvy buyer is going to see, okay, I'm buying a home in an association that is well-maintained, well-run, and fiscally sound which are all good things, goals for your association to have. Again, how do you figure out an adequate reserve fund? You really do need to go to a professional reserve specialist who has a license to create these uh, designation to create reserve studies. I'm not in favor of board members trying to create a reserve study yourself, you know, using an online program or maybe even management companies who are doing it, you know, as part of their management practice, I think you really should hire a qualified expert to help you with the planning on this. It's well worth your money. Let's see. I think really that, that kind of covers it on reserve studies. So we've talked a little bit about, like we said, strategic planning. We've talked about, you know, the importance of budgeting 
and creating a budget for the coming fiscal year. And now we've talked about having a reserve account and reserve study done by a qualified um, expert that has credentials to create reserve studies. The last thing we're going to talk about before we go into questions is going to be Eisenhower method cheat sheet. So there are probably some people on this call today who are serving on your board, or maybe you're a homeowner in a community, or maybe you're a manager that has a community like this that you're managing, where there's a lot of problems. And sitting through a call like this or a Zoom call like this probably is creating a little anxiety for you because maybe you have a ton of deferred maintenance, or maybe you have a really serious problem, like there was maybe some embezzlement of funds. Or maybe you can't get insurance right now because there have been so many claims. Or maybe your community is fighting, right? And you can't get along. And if you can't get along, you can't get anything done. And so what I wanted to close this session with is our Eisenhower cheat sheet. And how I became aware of this Eisenhower method is I went back to school. I can't believe it. It's been nine years now. Um, but I went back to school nine years ago and I got a master's in business to help me better run my law firm and to help my clients, HOAs and condominiums, better run their communities from a financial perspective. And one of the great little tidbits that I picked up in this two-year program was the Eisenhower method. And basically, we're going to be sharing with you this cheat sheet. And for those of you that have serious problems right now in your community, what I would like you to do is to take a look at this cheat sheet and prioritize your problems based upon the criteria that's in the cheat sheet. So a lot of Fortune 500 uh, companies use the Eisenhower method to prioritize their problems. Um, it was first developed in World War II, and it was used World War I and World War II to handle all of the different problems that were coming at the United States military during that time and prioritizing, okay, what should we spend be spending our time on? The model was so successful um, in the military that then the business leaders started to adopt it. And basically what you do, and, and I, I use this just, you know, for my association, I think some of you who have listened in maybe on our seminars before, I was on my board for a number of years. I got off my board when I started having children um, in about 2006 or seven. And because I just couldn't do it all, I wanted to focus on my practice. And then I needed a night off not to go to my HOA board meeting. <laughs> and then I got off my board for about 10 years. And then I got back on in 2016. And we had a lot of problems in our association. And I was just fresh out of coming out of my program. And we were able to successfully turn around our community in less than two years. Um, using this program. And, and basically, for some of you who maybe have listened in on some of my seminars in the past, I was kind of an interesting perspective is, is that I have served on the board. And then I was just a homeowner that was generally happy with how things are going in my community. And then towards the end of the 10 years, like from year eight to 10, after I was on the board, I started to notice, hey, things aren't going right here. We don't have any money. The property's not being maintained. Our insurance has been canceled. The association can't pay their bills. And I got on, somebody on our board had a health issue. And so they asked for volunteers. I was the only person that volunteered. And when I got on my board, I discovered that there were some very serious problems. Our manager had um, embezzled over $500,000 from our community. 
and we didn't even have enough money to pay the electricity bill. And so this Eisenhower cheat sheet helped dig us out of it. So I, you know, it's five star. Here's what you do. You take all of your problems facing your community and you write them down, you know, and actually it makes you feel better to write them down too, because you always are thinking there's no way out of this problem, right? I can't fix this. Even me, somebody who has a lot of experience in representing associations, I had a lot of anxiety about how can we turn this around so that we can get this association financially sound and running you know, well again? So if you look at our Eisenhower cheat sheet sample that I give is actually a list of things. I didn't put all of them because it wasn't enough room, but the list of problems that we had at the time when I became the treasurer of our association in 2016. And so what you do is you list all the problems and then you... You number them based upon on a one to 10 scale and you number them in terms of, is this important? You'd go through each one and say, is this important? And you number it one to 10, 10 being very important, one being you know not as important. Then you go through, is this urgent? And then you do the same one to 10 scale. And then you compare the numbers. And so what you're looking for is you start with the problems that are both important and urgent. And basically, one of the problems with serving on a board is time management, right? Because you have a life outside of the board and you don't want to be spending 20, 30, 40 hours a week being a board member, right? And so what this enabled us to do as a board to dig out of our problems, and I've other associations that we work with have used this to dig out of some serious problems, is it's the first step to start addressing really serious problems. And so, you know, what you do is you're going to take all the problems that are both important and urgent, and you're going to start focusing on those first. And then then you're going to just start categorizing, do it now, things that we cannot put aside, we have to do it now. And then here's some things that we can put off five years. Here's something that, that we, you know, maybe can put off six months, but it's important. We still need to do it, but it's not as urgent as the ones that are urgent and important. And it just gives you, it takes that list and it just divides it up to, okay, we should be focusing on this for the next six months. And then we can push this off and not worry about this till next year. And it just, it gives you some clarity and helps you prioritize. That's probably the most important thing that I can tell you. And just to give you an example of what can happen if you're one of these associations that's listening here today and you have a lot of problems is our association was supposed to have, I, I can't even remember, somewhere between three and $4 million in our reserve account. And when I became the treasurer, we were down to $200,000 in our reserve account. And we had some really big maintenance issues that we were like staring us right in the eye needing to be addressed. That was, so about 2016 was, you know, right when everything was going really bad. We discovered that the manager had stolen all this money and we were going to the police and trying to get the manager arrested and making an insurance claim on our fidelity bond and making claims with the banks that let the manager be the ATM of our association's funds. And basically from 2016 to 2019 was rebuilding time. And we really were very hyper-focused on the problems on the Eisenhower sheet that were both urgent and important. And we got a lot done. The manager went to jail. We got most of the money back from an insurance claim. We got a restitution order against the manager. You know, we got the bank's insurance companies to pay us some money. 
for them not following the procedures and allowing the manager to take money from the association. We started taking away at the most serious infrastructure and um, maintenance issues that needed to be addressed. And we, the homeowners in our community started to notice, hey, things are looking better. We started funding our reserve. And so from 2016 to 2022, we went from $200,000 to $2 million. And now we're almost at $3 million in 2023. So it can be done. If you're one of these associations that is facing a lot of problems, it, and it could be anything, really. I mean, you, you know it. Every association is different. And I hear about it with all of our clients that we work with. Get this Eisenhower cheat sheet out and write down your problems, prioritize them in terms of urgency and importance, and then start working on turning it around. And it works. So if you have a lot of anxiety about your problems right now in your association, this is a really good tool to help you. Okay, we are right on time, which we covered a lot today. Um, And so I'm happy to to say that. So we are going to switch gears now and talk a little bit about the questions that have been submitted today. So I'm really happy to see that we have over 100. At one point, we had 130 different people um, joining us on Facebook Live and on Zoom collectively. Um, It looks like right now we have about 18 questions. So if you have any questions, make sure that you're submitting them either on Zoom or on Facebook Live in the comment box. So we're going to start with the first question. What is the HOA responsibility for a tree on a private lot that is encroaching on three other homeowners' property? Okay, so lots of issues here. So it appears that the tree is on a private lot. I'm assuming that means it's a homeowner's lot. And I'm guessing that this is like a four corners type situation, right? Where the tree's on one lot and then maybe it's growing, the branches are are growing, extending into the other properties, lots. Well, if the association, it's not the association's tree apparently, and it sounds like this is a homeowner to homeowner issue. So I guess then I, I flip over to what can homeowners do if you have a tree that's encroaching on your property and it's not your tree? So what Arizona law says is that you can trim the tree back to the property line, something you can do. I think probably a first thing you want to do would be to reach out to the homeowner who has the tree on their property and ask them first to trim it back. Um, And if they refuse, then you certainly have the right to trim it back to your property line. But I don't feel that the association has any responsibility here. I mean, obviously, if you notify the association it's possible that they may be able to write a letter to the owner that has the tree. It's not required. Just saying that we've received complaints regarding your tree and please contact your neighbors to discuss this. Something, of course, you can do if if you don't know the owner's name, you don't want to knock on their door, you can look up their property address on the Maricopa County Assessor's Office and it'll give you their name and their contact information. Okay, next question. Developing an HOA manual, policies, procedures, board code of conduct, roles and responsibilities, budget, reserves, board meetings, bylaws, maintenance grid. What do you think? I think that's awesome. And the great thing about this is you can pass it on to future generations of board members, right? To board members typically don't stay on the board for 20 years. So somebody serves two terms and they leave, it's longevity. You can just pass this information on to make um, the job easier for future board members. So I love the idea. It, it will take a lot of work, but I think all these points you've made here are an excellent idea and is something I would advocate you doing. 
Question number three, how can our HOA enforce our CCNRs if we don't have a fine schedule? So great question. You know, you're not required under Arizona law to have a fine schedule. There was a case several years back that talked about the importance of having a fine schedule, but that case was ultimately depublished. So it's not relevant for our HOA condo industry. Here's what I can recommend to you. So if you want to enforce your CCNRs, there's lots of different ways that your board can enforce it. First, check what your CCNRs say about enforcement. Typically, you can um, file a lawsuit against the owner for whatever they're doing or not doing. Go to superior court, get an injunction. That's a pretty aggressive thing to do. Before doing that, you may want to send a courtesy reminder letter, a demand letter. You may want to turn the file over to your attorney and have them call the owner and reach out to the owner regarding the violation or write a, have the attorney write a letter. Another thing that you can do is levy fines. Under Arizona law, you're not required to have a fine schedule, but you are required to follow the fine process. And that means that you have to give notice of the violation. The violation has to be, you know, a violation of the CCNRs, bylaws, or rules of the association. After giving notice of the violation to the owner, you have to give them an opportunity to be heard. And that could be an opportunity for them to send an email back or come to a board meeting, explain their side on the violation. And then after the opportunity to be heard, then you can levy the fine. And so fines are an effective tool that you can use to get compliance. Remember, once you levy the fines, the only way that you can collect them is by going to justice court or superior court if it's over $10,000 in fines um, and getting the justice court or superior court to give you a judgment and piece of paper saying Johnny Appleseed owes ABC Association X amount of dollars in fines. And then you can record that judgment and it becomes a judgment lien. Another thing that you can do to enforce your CCNRs would be to go to the Arizona Department of Real Estate. They have a special arm of the ADRE that hears disputes between owners and associations regarding your association's documents and regarding Arizona law regarding HOAs and condos. Now, the ADRE can just issue you know, an opinion saying that somebody is or is not violating you know, the documents or state law. It doesn't have any um, injunctive relief where they can force somebody to do something, but it's a ruling by an administrative law judge. So there are lots of things you can enforce your CCNRs by doing, right? So again, you can send courtesy reminder letters, you can send formal violation letters, you can have your attorney call the owner, have your attorney write a letter to the owner. You can find the owner as long as you're following um, the process under Arizona law. You can go to Superior Court, get an injunction which is an order compelling the owner to comply with your CCNRs. And you can go to the Arizona Department of Real Estate and have an administrative law judge, you know, make a ruling as to whether or not somebody's violating the documents. Okay, question number four. What are all the assessments a condo association can levy against the owners? For example, regular assessments, special assessment. Are there any other special assessments that do not have any dollar limits? So this is a great question. You really do need to look at your association's documents for your condominium, and that will levy the different charges that you can charge your owners. So the typical charges that we'll see in condominium associations, CCNRs are going to be you know, the regular assessment. And how much you can raise the regular assessment will need to be listed in the condo documents. Now, I know you put in your, your note 20% above the prior year assessment, you might be referring to a law that pertains to planned communities. Um, if you're a condo, that 
you know, state law about it can't be more than 20% of prior year's assessment or a smaller amount if your documents call for a smaller amount. That applies to plan communities. For condos, there is no limit on how much the regular assessment can be increased unless there's a limit in your documents. So start by looking at your documents. So you can charge regular assessments. Most condominiums also can charge or levy a special assessment after getting a vote of a membership. You know, you may have some provisions in your documents that say that if an owner damages something that you can repair the damage and charge the owner for it if they did that. Or you may have self-help in your documents. And that says that if an owner isn't maintaining something on their property after giving notice, you can go and repair it and then charge the owner for that. Some other things that you can charge under Arizona law, maybe if your association has in your CCNRs a you might be able to do like a transfer fee when the property is being transferred or um, a capital improvement assessment. Um, but again, all of these have to be in your CCNRs. Under Arizona law, you can charge new buyers a disclosure fee for disclosing information about the association. So those are kind of like the, the normal fees that we see. Um, you have to be careful on the fees that you charge for a rental of a property. Um, we are limited charging owners for renting their property. There's a $25 fee that we can charge and we have to provide them you know, with notice that they have to pay the fee. And then we ask them very few categories of information regarding the rental that we're allowed to ask under Arizona law. So that's another small fee that you can charge. Also late fees if they don't pay their assessments on time. But really go back and look at your documents because your specific documents for your association will outline in your CCNRs what things you can charge for, what assessments can be levied. Question five, in regards to the new law on street parking, does this also include vans and motorhomes? Very good question. I don't think I'm going to go back up and look at the language. That's why I love teaching these classes because you really have to look at the laws, right? So it does appear that it would because it says that the association, you know, would not be able to regulate any roadway if the street has been dedicated to a governmental agency. But that being said, you're going to want to check with your city, town, or municipality to see what their rules are, motorhomes and commercial vehicles, that type of thing too, because the streets are dedicated to the government entity. The government entity may have own ordinances that pertain to that. Okay, next question. Number six, Memorial Day is approaching and there is a banner of flags across the top of a couple of the townhome garages along with a long narrow flag near the entryways with a couple other small decorations. We look through our governing documents, our CCNRs, bylaws, and rules. The only thing it states is that you cannot alter by changing the integrity of the structure by modification, defect, and improvements, and you need an architectural request for flags. What are excessive items or decorations? This is it's a tough question because it's kind of, it all depends on, I have to see a picture usually. It's kind of like you know, what the Supreme Court says. I know it when I see it, but I think a couple things to think about. Number one, you should really go look at the approved flag list under Arizona law that owners can have on their property. So they can have an American flag, an Arizona state flag, Indian nation's flag. You know, there's a whole list of the different flags. And last year it was updated to include first responder flags and you know a number of other flags that are allowed. So I'm assuming you didn't say specifically, but Memorial Day is approaching. So I'm assuming that this is kind of like a red, white, blue themed type um, display. 
And the banner flags are probably maybe the United States flags or because they're, it sounds like it's a long, narrow strip. Maybe it's just red, white, blue or stars and stripes or something. You know, I guess a couple things. Number one, something that I would be thinking about. Do you want to be on the news as a board would be number one. So if you tell this owner in the month of May, when we are celebrating Memorial Day to honor our fallen veterans, if you tell them, hey, you can't have this patriotic display, or if you do it on Veterans Day or you're, you're doing it on the 4th of July, I think you're going to be on the news because it might be perceived as being an unreasonable prohibition or this is the bad HOA being nitpicky. And so, you know, be really careful. One thing that you could do is if this is the type of thing that this is up all year, maybe what you do is adopt a policy for your association that talks about seasonal decorations and maybe say seasonal decorations can go up 15 days before the holiday and then they need to be removed 15 days after the holiday. But remember, if it's an American flag or any of the other other protected flags, those are allowed to be up at all times. So hopefully I've given you some suggestions. Be reasonable because I don't want you on, you know, the news for being that big, bad HOA that's making somebody take down their decorations. Okay, next question is, can an HOA use the money in the reserves to remodel and improve some of the common areas? It's a pretty general question, but what I would say kind of a rule of thumb would be any money that you have in the reserves, you should be spending it on, you know, long-term capital improvement projects that are outlined in your reserve study. If you don't have a reserve study done and you just have like a savings account for your association and you, you know, you want to use the money for that, I mean, I'd need to know more about what, what is remodeling and improving. What does that mean? You know, and are there any other legal issues that may come up with remodeling and improving your common areas? Because sometimes your documents say that if you're changing the use of a common area, that you need to get a vote of the membership before you do that. So you'll want to, you know, reach out to our firm or your legal counsel to ask for more specific information on this. Like, what specifically do you want to remodel in the common areas? And um, how much is it going to cost? And is this in your reserve or not in your reserve study? And is there anything in your CCNRs that might prohibit you from doing this without a vote of membership? Okay, next question. Our treasurer routinely sends a large volume of emails to our manager, typically 30 to 40 per month often multiple emails in a single day. The treasurer continues to do this in spite of our requests that he limit the number of emails. The manager has indicated to me and him that if this continues, she's going to be, she's going to ask to be reassigned from our account. What suggestion would you make regarding the well-intentioned but excessive communication by the director? Okay, this is like a very common problem. And even when I was the president of my association, I had another board member that was actually doing this to me. And it was like 300 to 400 emails in a three or four month period. And it was honestly driving me crazy. So I get it. This manager, if you really like this manager, you're going to get manager burnout if you don't address this quickly. So I think it's unreasonable just from my perspective as a board member to be bombarding your manager with one board member, bombarding your manager with 30 to 40 emails a month. It's too much. And so I think your board needs to talk about a protocol for who can talk with the manager by email and what types of things are urgent and what types of things should wait till the meeting. And so what you may want to do is you may want to get a better idea as the president. Okay. Like what are these emails about? 
maybe ask the manager to share over the past two weeks. Can you share with me? Just forward me the emails that the treasurer has been sending to you so I can get a better feel for what's going on. I don't know. Are these like mean emails? Are these just, I have so much time on my hands that I'm bored. I want to reach out, you know, the manager and talk. I don't know. Is the manager screwing up? Like, is the treasurer raising valid points? I don't know the nature of the emails. So I think you need to get to the bottom of that first. And then I think you need, as a president, I think you need to talk with the treasurer. And after you've looked at the emails and come up with a plan for how we can um, better handle the information flow. And so maybe one suggestion is, is that um, only the president can email the manager outside of a meeting. Maybe that's one option. Another option would be maybe the treasurer only sends one email a week to the manager and lists everything in one email and then copies the president. So the president is kind of in a loop on what's going on. I think good communication with the treasurer and the manager on this is can help you better frame the issue and then come up with a plan so we don't lose the good manager. Okay, question number nine. Assume that an HOA board of directors... 2023 budget reflects a net loss equal to double the association's annual revenue, risking possible insolvency. Further assume that some actual 2023 year-to-date line item expenditures are discretionary and materially exceed the budget. What are a board's limitations, if any, in approving such a budget and subsequently dispersing association funds in excess of the budgeted line item? Okay, your association needs help. Because just based upon what you're telling me, the red flags are going up left and right in my mind. Okay, so you should, a budget being proposed to your board that has expenses that are exceeding your revenue by 2x, that's not a balanced budget. And it it is, you're right, it is a pathway to insolvency or not having enough money to pay the necessary bills for your community. So you need to go back and look at the budget go back to our cheat sheet and on budgets and you need to revise that budget right away. And that may mean that you have to increase your revenue. How do you do that? You may have to look at how do we increase our assessments or how do we levy a special assessment? You probably need to get your attorney involved in this um, or our law firm can help you, but you have serious problems and you need to immediately, I mean, we're already in May, you need to immediately revise that budget and balance the budget um, so that your expenses meet your income. The second thing I would say is, okay, when you're in this situation already where you're operating at a loss, 2x loss, you know, now you're spending things on discretionary items. Now, again, I'm seeing this question framed by somebody. Whenever I teach these classes, sometimes I'll get an email the next day from a board member saying, that person got it all wrong. (laughs) They didn't tell you all the facts. I mean, I don't know... It's hard to define a discretionary expenditure because is fixing the pool pump a discretionary expenditure? I don't know. For me, I would think it's a necessary expenditure, but some people may say we could chain the pool shut, right? I'd have to better understand, you know, what the discretionary budget items are. If they're not in your budget, you know, sometimes there are surprises that come up that aren't in your budget for that year and you have to adjust. That does happen. I had an email this morning on my board where we're going to be talking about it at the board meeting in two weeks that, hey, this issue's come up and it's not in our budget. It wasn't on our radar, but it needs to be on our radar now. We need to deal with it. 
So we're probably going to have to cut expenses somewhere else um, to meet that budget item. Okay, question 10. How can a board meet to work on a strategic plan if all board meetings are to be pre-announced and comply with the open meeting statutes? The best way to do that is to just make it an open board meeting, but call it a strategic plan board meeting. So the board's just discussing things. Homeowners would be allowed to listen if they want to. If you don't want homeowners there, then have less than a quorum meeting to discuss association business. Less than a quorum doesn't have to comply with the open meeting law. Invite your attorney to come to the meeting and and you could be getting legal advice from your attorney and it can be an executive session. That would be a workaround on the open meeting too. Okay, question number 11. It looks like we are up to 23 questions. Is there a dollar amount capital expense that has to be voted on by the members? Check your documents. Some documents say that if the board is going to spend over $100,000, it needs to be approved by the membership. And by check the documents, I mean, check the CCNRs, the bylaws, and the articles. Sometimes there's a weird provision in the articles and corporation. Okay, question 12. Our association is responsible for all of the street maintenance. Also, street signs say private, which means patching and repaving. We are an older association. How do we fit in the new law? If you're responsible for maintaining um, your streets, that, that new law probably does not apply to you. So... Again, the criteria for the law to apply to you is that you have to be a planned community, number one, which you check that box, it sounds like, and the streets have to be dedicated to a governmental agency. And so if you're maintaining it, I'm confident that the streets are dedicated to um, a governmental agency. So the new law does not apply to you. Okay, next question, number 13. What do we do with reserve funds if a reserve study says we do not need a reserve fund? We have no amenities, no gates, no monuments. We only have five HOA-owned lots, which are maintained through operating funds. So I guess one thing, if I were looking at this issue that I would wonder is, okay, are these like vacant lots? Sounds maybe like it is. I would think that the maintenance on that, you know, do you plan to build on these lots or do you plan to sell them at some point? You're right. If it's just general maintenance, like let's say they're just tumbleweeds flying around, you probably don't need a reserve fund. But I would need to know a little bit more information about the lots to answer that question. Question number 14. Can you create a rule and regulation that contradicts the CCNRs, such as planting in front of your home that is considered a common area? You know, no, you, you should not be creating a rule that contradicts the CCNRs. You can't do that. Now, that being said, sometimes associations, you know, I don't know what, what the specific language is in your CCNRs. Maybe it says that just this front yard area is common area and the association is responsible for maintaining it. Maybe it says something more specific, like the front area in front of your lot is common area and owners are not allowed to plant in it. And so you, you can't create a rule to do this. There are certain circumstances where if we look at the language of the documents, maybe the association can allow, you know, the owner to plant something if it's not specifically prohibited in the common areas. It's sticky to do it because then the, the question comes up, well, okay, somebody wants to put a tree in the common areas. Who's going to maintain it? Who's going to maintain it after this owner no longer owns the unit? 
Um, and so all these issues really need to be, be thought out and possibly there needs to be something recorded that talks about maintenance of these items. Is there going to be irrigation? Who's going to pay for the water for the irrigation, et cetera? But it's typically not normal that the association, you know, allows somebody to go an owner to go and plant a bunch of stuff in the common areas. It's rare and it needs to be documented in a certain way. Okay, question 15. Our documents require 66% yes votes to change the CCNRs. Election of board members requires a 10% quorum for the meeting. For the parking vote, which do we need? So you're technically, you're not changing the CCNRs. You're basically just voting on whether or not to continue to maintain, excuse me, to be able to allow to regulate the roadway. I mean, it's a really interesting question that you're raising here, though, because the way that the statute is written is that it doesn't say you have to amend your CCNRs. It just says that you have to call a meeting of the membership and vote on whether to continue to regulate the public roadways or not. It's not saying that you have to have an amendment to the CCNRs. You know, I mean, of course, you could structure your vote that way. I guess it's it's interesting to see that. So you're going to have to have a quorum, which is going to be 10%, and then a majority of that number of votes. So you need to have a quorum of the membership and a majority of that number of votes to continue regulating public roadways. So this is a good clarification question. So let's make this easy. Let's say that you have 100 owners in your association, in your planning community, and your quorum is 10%. So you would need 10 owners to show up at the meeting, have a quorum to vote on this. And let's say that actually you had more than a quorum. Let's say that 30 show up you're going to need to have a majority of that number of votes, so a majority of 30. So you need to have 16 vote to continue regulating the roadway. My worry here is that it's, it's a majority of a quorum. Is Even though the law didn't specifically say it that way, that's the way that I read it when they say you have to have a quorum of the membership and a majority of that number of votes. So majority of the quorum to pass this. I mean... With my little example, it seems like, oh, hey, it's no problem to get 16 owners, right? But the reality is for some of these larger associations that have a thousand owners, if you have a 10% quorum, a hundred owners, that's a lot of people to get to come to a meeting on a parking issue. And let's be real here. Most people want to park their car in front of their house. And so they're going to be all in favor of getting rid of regulation of roadways in an association where the streets are you know, dedicated to the public. So I think it's going to be a hard vote to get. Okay. Short answer would be, you don't need to change your CCNRs. It's not what the document, you know, what the new law says. It just says you have to vote on the issues. You need majority of the quorum for your association. But it is kind of complicated because if it passes and you're no longer regulating the roadways, at some point, you're going to need to do an amendment to your CCNRs and change that. I'm not saying you're required to do it, immediately, but it's an inconsistency. And you're going to want to make sure the meeting minutes have a really good paper trail on this um, so that future boards will understand exactly what happened and why we're not regulating roads if it goes down that way. Okay, next question. Is a reserve study account separate from our regular money market account? It depends on how you set it up. I mean, so it could be, or it may not be. Like for my association, we have reserve funds, but we have them invested in CDs that have that they expire at different times, staggered times. But the funds are allocated as reserve funds. So 
Um, I don't know. I think it's all in how you're allocating the funds and assuming that you're not commingling them with the general checking account of the association. Okay, question number 17. And we have a total of 23 questions. So we're getting close to the end. To what extent is a reserve study useful to help make sure that insurance coverage for association-owned property is adequate? It's really unrelated. Basically, if you're looking at insurance coverage for your association, you want to look at what your CCNRs say. In CCNRs, there's typically an insurance provision that says what type of insurance you have to have for your community. Now, a related issue to this would be, I mean, the reserve study is, is kind of, it's a separate issue. And we have a cheat sheet on insurance too on our website at multihealawfirms.com that can help you better understand insurance issues for your association. How this could come into play would be like, let's say that so a tennis court example. The tennis court has fallen into major disrepair and you're concerned that you need more insurance because somebody could fall using the tennis court or you've chained it shut. You know, and um, so that could impact your insurance. Your insurance company may make you carry more insurance or an umbrella because you haven't maintained things in your community or because maybe you've had a lot of claims due to lack of maintenance. Okay, question number 18. Could you do strategic planning in a workshop meeting called by the board and open to all homeowners? Absolutely. If you are the strategic plan, if you're not voting on it and you're just discussing it, um, a workshop meeting is, you know, as long as it's properly noticed, if a majority of the board is a majority of the board, which might be a quorum, is there of the board discussing it, then you um, certainly, you know, could call it a workshop as long as no voting by the board is being done. And you want to make it open to the homeowners because under the open meeting law, anytime a quorum of the board is meeting to discuss association business, which the plan would be, you need to give notice to the membership and make it an open meeting. But if you don't want owners to contribute, just don't vote on anything because the only time that owners are able to contribute at a meeting by law is before the board takes formal action on something. Okay, what is the current Arizona condominium law regarding residential solar installations on HOA-owned roofs? Basically, there's a number of laws. There's a couple of different laws that pertain to use of solar energy devices in an HOA or condo. We have a great cheat sheet that gives you the 411 on all of this, and we're sharing it with you right now. Um, it's called Solar Panels and Creating a Green Community. The statute numbers and a description and the full language of the statutes is listed in that cheat sheet. Okay, question number 20. We have substantial damage to a brick wall due to a tree in the next property apartment community. They complied to remove it, but we are unsure if the roots were properly treated, so the damage continues at a slower rate. Who could I expect should pay for this repair? Hmm. My, I have a lot of experience with tree roots and causing damage to you know a wall. I'm hoping that you had some sort of a construction expert come out and look at the wall and determine what exactly was causing the damage and why is the wall deteriorating or why is the wall separating? Maybe you need to have the expert come back out and look at it again. Um, typically, once the tree is removed, the roots shouldn't be an issue anymore. I don't know how far did they stump it or did they actually pull all the roots out. Um, have the expert look at it. If you can prove that through an expert, qualified expert, that their tree caused problems to our wall, 
you may have a claim against the neighboring apartment owner and they may or may not pay it. If you send them a letter, you may have to go to justice court depending on how much walls are expensive. So it might be superior court, but you're going to have to balance, you know, how old is your community? When was this wall built? Can we decisively say that this tree caused all this damage? You're going to need to do like a 360 evaluation of this with your legal counsel to determine what's the best way to handle this. Okay. Question 21. Should the HOA get an attorney involved to get a judgment lien, or can they do this themselves? And is there a time limit to seek the judgment lien? Really good question. So all, almost all Arizona condominiums and planning communities are considered not our nonprofit corporations, meaning that they have filed paperwork to limit their liability so that they are nonprofits um, and Why that is important is because there's case law that says that nonprofits cannot go to court to represent themselves, you know, without legal counsel. Short answer, should you get an attorney involved to get a judgment lien? I have seen some associations go to justice court or small claims court to get a judgment. I And the homeowner doesn't raise the issue that they're supposed to have an attorney representing them. And I have seen some, some associations get the judgment and then record it. But to be perfectly proper legal advice, I would say that, you know, the HOA really should get an attorney involved because they're set up as a nonprofit corporation. And there is case law that says that they should have legal counsel and any court proceedings. Okay, next question, 22. We have had occasional transients try to hide in our common property areas and police have been called to remove them. However, it's becoming more popular. Police are harder to reach for this non-emergency issue. Do you have any suggestions? So I'm, I'm sorry to hear this. Obviously, this is a problem that is affecting our entire country. A couple of things. You may want to look at the areas where the um, transients are you know, hiding, and you may want to put up some fencing or other types of things that are going to deter from somebody wanting to be there. We have had associations put up temporary fencing, or permanent fencing, that would be, you know, one example. You could post no trespassing signs. I think that would be a good idea as well. Um, You could put lighting in these areas so that motion detector lighting so that people aren't going to want to be staying there because it's going to have a bright light shining on it. I think those are some good suggestions. You may also want to reach out to the police department versus, you know, making a call to their non-emergency line, maybe going down to the precinct and asking them if they have any suggestions or reaching out to the neighborhood services department in the city that you live in. Maybe they have some suggestions that they may be able to help you with too. Okay, question number 23. It looks like we are down to our last three questions. Does an association have a right to know if there are any benefits the management company is receiving by maintaining controlled association funds at a specific bank. For example, vendor payments or rate benefits are provided by the bank, the management company. Okay, this is a really good question. This is this thought has crossed my mind too, especially with the recent FDIC takeover of several banks, you know, one in California, one in New York. It's concerning to me. And how that relates to this is, okay, so... The management companies, we all know, try to push to have the HOAs that they manage all bank with the same bank. And I get it. There's a logistical advantage in that the money is in one place. You know, you have a relationship with that bank as a management company. 
where I get into the worry zone is if you have more than the FDIC insured limits in that bank, is that a problem? And I, I do think it's a problem. And, and what, what we're seeing and how this relates to this question is some management companies are pushing for associations to keep all their money, including their reserve accounts with one bank. And that means that they have over $250,000 with one bank. And that if that bank has a problem and the FDIC needs to come in and bail out the bank, technically under the law, you know, you're only entitled to $250,000 of insurance on the money that you have there. So if you have $3 million in there and the FDIC comes in and takes over the bank, and the government isn't backing it dollar for dollar like they have been on the last few bailouts, you're really in a pickle as an association because you're out the money other than $250,000. So are there benefits that the management company is receiving by keeping all of the funds for the associations that they manage at a specific bank? I don't know the answer to that. That's a good question for the management company. And I would ask the CEO, I don't know if they're going to tell you or they don't have to. But it's a good question to ask. And if I had to guess, there is a relationship there because of the large amount of money that is at that bank because of the manager's relationship with the associations. Now, does that equate anything? I don't know. Maybe you contact a man. I've never asked a management company that, but maybe you ask your management company CEO that and see what they say. Um, And then keep in mind that $250,000 FDIC insurance and don't let the management company pressure you to keep more than that in one bank. There are ways that you can put that money into other banks um, with CDs. There's lots of different ways you can do that. We have a blog on our website that talks about this. That would be a great resource if you're interested in finding more information on that. Best way to find that, go to mulcahylawfirm.com and type in FDIC in the blog search engine and it should pop right up. Okay, last two questions. How many cars can a homeowner have and park? The streets are city streets. So I don't know what your documents say on this. So do your CCNRs state that owners, you know, can only park their vehicles in the garage? Do the CCNRs state that owners can only park their vehicles in the garage in the driveway? How many cars can you have? I don't know. Depends on what your CCNRs say. You know, this new law isn't going to go into effect or, you know, you have to go back and, and look at the language on it, but I don't know if your association has CCNRs that were recorded before December 31st, 2014 or not. So there's a lot of unknowns here. So how many cars can you have in park? Depends on a lot of different factors. Wish I could give you the answer on that, but look at your CCNRs, look at when your CCNRs are recorded and then go from there. Okay, next question, number 25. We have less than 5,000 in our HOA account and only 34,000 in the, let's see, the reserve account. I requested copies of the insurance that is listed in the management contract. Insurance necessary for proper protection and preservation of the project, including liability and fidelity coverage for officers and directors. Manager will provide fidelity insurance for office personnel that handle HOA funds in the amount of $250,000. This was increased by 100,000 for 2023. Can a member request these and are there any other insurance policies that would be helpful for owners that are in fear of losing their homes? Okay, so good question. So you have very little money in your 
HOA accounts. You've got five grand in your checking account, 34,000 in your reserve account. You want to know what kind of insurance is listed in the management contract. I think you got to be asking for a couple of different types of insurance. So what is the insurance that the association carries? Ask for a copy of all declaration sheets for all insurance that the association is currently as in place. You want to know the different kinds of insurance that you, you know, may need for an association, check your CCNRs number one, and then look at our cheat sheet on insurance, which can be found at mulcahylawfirm.com. Just go to our cheat sheet, drop down on the first page, type in insurance, and it'll pop right up. After you look at your documents, read our cheat sheet, then look at the declaration sheet for the association's insurance and look at how much insurance you have listed and see if it jives with you know, what your requirements are of your CCNRs. You're asking right now for the management company's insurance. Well, that's okay, but that's not enough. I mean, of course, we want the management company to have insurance fidelity bonds for their employees stealing at the association's money. They also need to have you know, liability insurance for the management company, but you need to be worried about you know, the association's insurance that's in the association's name too. Can you request this from the management company? They can, if it's part of the association's records, yes, it's a record that belongs to the association. Management company's already given proof of insurance to the association and it's in our records. Yes, you, you're entitled to see that. If the management company hasn't given it to the association, and you're making that request to the management company, they don't have to give you their insurance information. Um, the association must give you a copy of the insurance policy for the association if you request it. And they have 10 business days to do that. Okay, next question is, what are the record-keeping requirements for HOAs and management companies? So we have a great cheat sheet on this topic on our webpage, mulcahylawfirm.com. It's just called like records retention for associations. And we just, we dial it in for you on that cheat sheet. We talk about how long you should keep minutes of the association's board meetings. I say forever. Keep documents of the association forever. How long do we have to keep information regarding a former owner? Um, how long, you know, do we have to keep owner lot files? Because things have mostly gone to the cloud for storage, you know, a lot of associations aren't getting rid of a lot of documents. They're keeping their institutional history. And so check out our cheat sheet. We give you how long in years. I mean, kind of a rule of thumb is going to be there's a six-year statute of limitations for a breach of contract. So we want to keep most of the records for six years, some of the records longer that are the history and institutional history of the association. Some of them we keep forever. So check out that cheat sheet on um, record keeping for an association on our website at Mulcahy Law Firm. Com. I think it's called records retention. Um, and that will give you some good tips on this. Okay, next question. What about a sweep account that supposedly keeps the money under the 250 limit? So I guess I'd have to hear more about the sweep account, but you know, so I'm guessing that the my understanding of this is that okay, you have a certain amount of money in your account with ABC Bank. And when it gets over 250000 it gets transferred somewhere else, swept to another account. I don't know if it's going to the same bank. So it's $250,000 for all accounts in that one bank. So you could have a reserve account there. You could have a checking account there. But you shouldn't keep more than $250,000 in one bank. That sweep account moves it to another bank or to um, a separate 
you know, like a CD or something with another institution, you know, and that institution has FDIC insurance, then you should be fine. Take a look at our blog on this because I think it really explains the FDIC insurance and what associations can do to protect themselves. Okay, so we finished all of our questions. We our class has actually run really efficiently today. We had a very high number of, of attendees, which is awesome. We had 141 live viewers today on Zoom and many other joining us on Facebook Live. So if I had to guess, I think we had 150 today in terms of our viewers. So thank you so much for being here today. We appreciate you caring about your communities and wanting to learn more so that you can um, follow the law in your communities and, and make good decisions and plan for your future too. We have a couple educational opportunities coming up that are free for board members, managers, and homeowners. You always want to check out our webpage at mulcahylawfirm.com. We have our upcoming seminars listed on a tab right off of the homepage. So you can find out information about all of our upcoming classes there. Our next virtual First Friday, which is the opportunity where you can um, join us on Zoom or Facebook Live, and we answer questions for free, one question per attendee, um, will be Friday, June 2nd at 9 a.m. Um, and this will be our June First Friday free call-in. And we answer those questions live. If you can't join us live, um, you can go back and watch the video um, and, and see your question get answered after the live presentation. You can find additional information on this on our website and questions can be submitted starting right now through the morning of June 2nd at 8.45 a.m. Um, we also have our June upcoming Neighborhood Services Virtual HOA Condo Academy. This class is going to be a really informative class. We're going to talk about everything you need to know about Arizona HOA and condo law in 60 minutes. So it's rapid fire. It's going to be quick. We're going to give you just everything at your fingertips that you need to know about for the law in Arizona regarding condos and playing communities. So we hope you'll join us for that. Um, that should be an informative class that almost everybody um, in our industry can benefit from attending. Last things um, I just want to mention is that we sure would appreciate a Google review for our firm if you're so inclined to do that. We are always happy to get feedback from our clients and from anyone who's attending these classes about how we're doing. Um, and that's a great way to do that. And you know, it, it gives us feedback first um, on the classes, and then it also helps attract other people to come to our classes. So if you're willing to do that, please Google Mulcahy Law Firm, and you'll see a spot when you Google our name with the Google form to give us a Google review. Um, and we would ask for you to do that if you're so inclined. Finally, I just want to say thank you again to the many different neighborhood services departments who partner with us to provide the virtual HOA Condo Academy. Um, it's a pleasure to work with all of you. The cities of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Surprise, and Tempe have been amazing partners uh, to work with to provide these classes to you. They're free um, and they care about your associations and your boards and your homeowners and want you to have um, the most up-to-date information so that all of you can effectively run your associations and follow the law. So thanks again to, to the different neighborhood services departments. It's our pleasure to work with you. And finally, um, we're at the end of our seminar. So I hope everybody has a great rest of the month. Happy Memorial Day um, to all of you. And I look forward to seeing you in June. Take care. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. 
the antenna bar Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos, and podcast is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation.